Good morning. My name is Charles Kim, and I'm one of the elders here at Pacific Crossroads Church. If you're visiting with us today for the first time, welcome again. And for those who may not know, our senior pastor, Rankin Wilborn, is on a six-month sabbatical through the end of the year. And while we will certainly miss Rankin and his teaching, this is an exciting time in the life of our church, one blessing of which is to hear from other pastors on our staff more frequently, and also to hear from some of the best teachers from across the country. I'm delighted to share that Ray Cortez will be preaching God's word with us this morning. Ray grew up in Miami, Florida, and attended Bellhaven College, Reform Theological Seminary, and Westminster Theological Seminary. He is the founding and senior pastor of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida, where he has been faithfully serving since 1983. Ray and his wife, Diane, have three married children and one, as Ray says it himself, enticingly single son, along with seven grandchildren, all boys. Please join me in giving Ray a warm Crossroads welcome. Thank you, Charles. All right, thank you to Charles. One enticingly single son, I believe that was actually his words, not mine. Delightful to be here, great privilege, actually. Only been to PCC one time about four years ago. My wife and I decided we we're going to drive the Pacific Coast Highway, so we flew to Los Angeles because I'm afraid of heights, so I want to drive on the inside lane all the way up, which also meant that before we left, my fear of heights meant we thought it was good to go to church. Just nice to be all squared away. And so um, we came to Pacific Crossroads. Now you're in a new town. We've never been to Los Angeles before. Where's Santa Monica High School? Where do you park? And all that. Um, we'll just never forget. We drove in, found the parking lot, found the park, and it seemed like somebody was there to open our door. And then they pointed to somebody in a shirt over at the stairwell, and that person said, go over there to the corner, and that person said, go to the light, and that person said, go across the street, and that person. And so it went all the way to get us in here. We were just amazed at the warmth and welcome and attention and care and the detail to what goes on around here. Do you know right back there stage where I was, they have like a, the door that shuts so it doesn't make any noise. There's like a towel on the door. Gosh, I mean, we're doing that at our church. We're getting a towel on the door. Um, and the warmth was so kind that actually when we came down for communion, the person who served us the Lord's Supper was so warm. My wife was so taken by it. She actually took a picture of him in the service. I was like, gosh, honey. I am a Presbyterian pastor. You don't take selfies with the uh, communion server. But anyway, really, we went home just amazed at PCC. So way to go, you guys, doing a great job of uh, the welcoming presence of Christ, really. Yeah, nothing. I'm all for cheering for yourself. Nobody else will. So, hey, if you're able to stand, why don't you turn? I'm going to read seven verses from Micah chapter 4. The prophet Micah is speaking to Judah, the people of God. He was particularly appalled by the treatment of the poor, and so he's expressing God's judgment on the treatment of the poor. And so there are harsh words of coming judgment. And then you come to chapter 4, in which he paints a beautiful picture of a future. that After the season of judgment is over, there's going to come a beautiful restoration. That's where we pick up Micah in chapter 4, just reading the first seven verses. It shall come to pass in the latter days 
Micah wrote that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come. Listen, we've had this picture, haven't we, of the Olympics. The nations of the world all gathering, streaming in. That's really a biblical picture here. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. This is the very word of God. You may be seated, please. All right, so there's an announcement already in the service that in a couple weeks you can go to a seminar and get vocational clarity, right? Redefine what your vocational purpose is. Well, that's what we're about this morning is about missional clarity. So what is your mission? Perhaps I could have started by saying, take a piece of paper, take a pen, and in one line, tell us what your mission is. My mission is in one Line Because you have one, whether you know it or not, whether you've identified it or not, you have a mission. When your feet hit the floor every morning, you go out into the world to accomplish something that's integral to you. So the real question isn't, do you have a mission? The question is, is the mission that you have a worthy mission? Martin Luther King Jr., sort of my life hero, And we know that he gave his life for a worthy mission. My wife and I were in Mississippi last year and we went to Medgar Evers' house where he constructed his house so there was no front door for the protection of his family. They entered through the garage and late one night as he was entering his house through the garage, some smarmy little uh, segregationist shot him from across the street. The blood 50 years later, is still there in the carport of that house. Medgar Evers lived his life as a civil rights pioneer. We know Rosa Parks, a seamstress, right, from Montgomery, Alabama, decided enough was enough. And our nation has been impacted. And this struggle goes on, we know. Just read this book on the plane on the way out here. It's called Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. How many of you have read this book? See a few hands go up, which just, of course, convinces me that You know, we are way ahead of you in Florida uh, than in California. Fabulous book. Here's a guy who graduates from Harvard Law School and moves to Alabama, begins an organization, one does not even exist for the advocacy of those who are on death row in Alabama, those who are mentally ill. In the book, he talks about children who are 13 years old or are sentenced to life in prison without hope of parole. He becomes their advocate. It is, is a beautiful story in which it says the message of this book is that evil can be overcome and that a difference can be made, a worthy 
life, right? A worthy mission. So you have a mission. Is it worthy? We know that people have trivial missions, right? Do they have Comic-Con out here like they do in Florida? I rest my case. Um, you know, there are people my age, and there's plenty of them, that have entire rooms of their house dedicated to Star Wars memorabilia. There are predominantly men, I suppose, who spend copious amounts of their time each year arranging their fantasy football league. There are, I can't tell you how many times the pastor have had people tell me the aim of their life is to be a millionaire by the time they're 30 years old. Uh, is to be a fabulously wealthy and successful and well-known. This is a trivial mission indeed. Then there's dangerous missions, right? Hugh Hefner lived his life on mission. His missions had a corrosive effect on our culture. ISIS, you couldn't have more dedicated people, right? They're living on mission, but their mission isn't bringing health and wholeness and well-being. It's causing our world to be more fractured and more adversarial and dangerous. Uh, Planned Parenthood is an organization that has a defined mission. The people who work there are on mission. Helicopter parents are on mission. It's a destructive mission. So what's the primary North American mission? Personal peace and affluence, right? This is what North Americans do. This is how North Americans make their decisions. Well, I'm taking a job in another place, but I I thought you really had good neighbors and a wonderful church. Yeah, but I think this is really going to make us happy. As a pastor, you know how often I'm told, well, uh, you know, I'm leaving my wife, I'm leaving my husband because I found someone else and they make me what? They make me happy. I've found true love. It's about my personal happiness. And one of the ways we can tell that in North America is by the way we pray. I haven't been yet in any church filled with small groups where when people get together in their small groups, if you were to listen into their prayers, what's the predominant thing that folks pray about? Health. So-and-so's been diagnosed with cancer. So-and-so's got to have surgery. So-and-so's, or the health of your children, or the health of your grandchildren, or some vexing problem that's taking away your own personal peace. God, come and bring the life of ease that I deserve and that you've promised. And that's not the way Jesus taught us to pray, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. And it's not the way Christians around the world pray. When Christians around the world experience North American prayers, they scratch their head because around the world, they don't believe that God's promised us affluence and peace and ease. And so it might be that they have persecution, but they don't ask for the persecution to be kept away. Very often they don't even ask that the persecution that they're facing would end. They say, God, make me faithful in the midst of it. I want more of you. I want to be filled with joy in the midst of the pain of living in this world. How often do you hear somebody pray, God, I'm not going to ask you to take my cancer away. What I want you to do is give me opportunity to bring you glory in the midst of my cancer. In fact, I don't even have cancer, but give me cancer if it would advance your kingdom because your kingdom matters more than my personal well-being and affluence. So what's your mission We know that Jesus was on mission. And I got to tell you that churches are um, dying for lack of mission. Millennials are struggling for lack of mission. Retirees are withering away for lack of mission. Marriages 
Listen, one of the things that pastors do is not just officiate in marriages, but they do premarital counseling. And often when I sit with a couple, I tell them, if you don't find a mission other than your astounding love for each other, if the whole point of this union is that you enter into marital bliss so that the two of you are happier and more fulfilled, then your marriage has no ultimate purpose. Your marriage will be shallow and weak and insipid. I don't get asked to do many weddings anymore. Um, (laughs) Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so he was sent. He was sent on a mission, wasn't he? As the Father has sent me, so send I you. Do you have missional clarity. Do you know why Jesus sent you into this world? Why you were born? Why you're alive? Why you've been given the education and opportunity you have? It is to accomplish what? On December 7th, 1941, my father was at a minor league football game in Newark, New Jersey, when over the loudspeaker they announced that the United States had come under attack from the empire of Japan. And my father the next day did what the young men in America did. They went to the recruiting station. And he couldn't sign up because everybody else was there. It took a couple weeks, but he um, spent the next number of years in the South Pacific because our entire nation suddenly had missional clarity, right? Everybody on the same page to accomplish something. So what is it that Jesus would have us do? When I was... A young man, I got really good advice. Somebody said, don't ask God to bless what you're doing. Find out what he's doing, join him, and you'll have his blessing. So what's he doing? Well, that would be point one. And point one would be this. What is the mission template? Okay. What was so important that God would send his own son to put on flesh to enter into the world? Here it is. The mission template is the mending of the world. The setting right of what we have messed up. The mission involves God's kingly authority being reasserted through Jesus to make the creation according to its original design. That's why his people cry out, thy kingdom come, thy will be done when I die and go to heaven. Is that what it is? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, here, in this place. Mend this place. And that's why we read Micah 4, because Micah 4 sets out a particularly beautiful picture that God gives us of what a mended creation would look like. He says three things here. The first thing he says in Micah chapter 4 is that in this mended world, that there will be delight in God. It describes here in verses 1 and 2 the nations flowing to God. He'll be worshipped. He'll be exalted. He'll be enjoyed. He'll be adored. God will be found beautiful. Do you notice in our world today is God is in the dock. God is on trial. You hear in worship today how we're combating that? You are good, good, good. You are a good father. Because our world says... A terrorist takes a truck in Nice, uh, France, and plows over scores of people, killing even children. Where are you, God? If there was a God, this sort of thing wouldn't happen. You see, in our world, God's on trial. It's God who's in the dock. But one day, we will see who he is. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and will be taken by his splendor. We will know that we will not only know his delight, but we will experience it ourselves being in the delighted in children of God, and it will change us. So you got it? 
in the mended world, delight in God. They'll be delight in each other. What does it say in the passage? Swords will be beaten into plow shares. We will be one grand family of God. Can we all get along? Well, one day we will. Yesterday, my wife and I took a food tour in Los Angeles. And so we went to Thai town and we went to little Armenia and we went to Korea town. It's just a beautiful picture of this blending of the nations and the cultures. And one day, this will be the picture of the earth, of the creation. Armaments no more. There'll be agricultural implements, swords into plowshares. There'll be no military academies, no terrorist training camps, no more prisons No more violence, no more assault, no more cruel words. There'll be no more guns. What? No Second Amendment? Um, Excuse me. There'll be no more spousal abuse. There'll be no custody fights. No more tribal or racial separation. There'll be no Democrats or Republicans. Hallelujah. One day we'll be one community, this one sweet family. And not only that, it tells us that one day there'll be shalom. You see it right there in verse 4 of chapter 4 of Micah. Every man will sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. It's a picture of contentment, of peace and safety. Nobody's worried. Nobody's afraid. Everybody's chill because, you know what? Everybody has meaningful employment. Everybody shares. There's no hoarding. Everybody has enough. There's no chasm between the rich and the poor. There's no humiliating dependency. There's no disease. There's no discord. There's no death. There's no death. This is the mission. Mend the earth. No more let sins or sorrows grow or thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow where the curse is found. Now, here's my question. Why doesn't this move us? I've preached this message in church. I've been a pastor for over 30 years. This just does not move the needle. I can tell you what does. Listen, we have podcasts. We know how many people download each podcast of each sermon and all of that. How many people buy the messages out of the bookstore and all that. Listen, if it has the word sex in the title, those things go, right? Or if we speak on current issues, if we say something about homosexuality, boy, everybody instantly, you have the attention of everybody in the room. What are they going to say? If we talk about relationships or marriage or parenting, I mean, we've got everybody When I preach this topic in our church, there's just one old lady that goes in the bookstore and buys a CD, and it's only because she's confused. She's looking for last week's message. Um, (laughs) You know why? Because we're drowned in prosperity, and it's killed us spiritually. It's the prosperity of our culture. You know, if you lived in the south of Sudan, and the Muslim majority government of the north had swept into your village, and they've killed your parents, and they've raped your sister, and they've left you all alone, and you run and hide in the woods until they leave, and then you begin a 27-day march to a refugee camp where every day you're um, menaced. When you get to the refugee camp, there's no sanitation, there's hardly any food, there's no law, there's no future, there's no hope, you have no family, you have no kin, you have nothing, you have no home, you have no country, you have no people. 
What are you doing the whole time you're walking there? Come, come Lord Jesus. Come and rescue, come and mend the world. Come and make the world new. This world is not my home. This world holds nothing for me. In our country, we rarely experience that except for a horrific trial. One of the dark days of being a pastor was when I got the call that a young boy in our church, a ninth grader, had been suspended from school. He uh, found his father's gun in the house and he put the gun to his own head. So somebody called and I rushed over there and the helicopter had taken the young boy away to trauma care to try to rescue his life. And I packed the parents into my car and we raced off for the hospital. The hospital I took him to was an hour and a half away. It was a long drive of uh, weeping and crying. And we arrived in the trauma care. The surgeon pulled us in and he sat us down. I'll never forget his tenderness to this um, couple. Their boy was, you know, 13 years old or so, but the surgeon just kept saying, your baby. We've got your baby. We've done everything we can for your baby. But I got to tell you, I can't make your baby better. We can't mend your baby. Your little baby's too broken. He's not going to make it. And we just cried our eyes out. Jesus Jesus, you've got to do something. Come. Come and mend your broken world. We need shalom. We need you. Friends, do you know who the great physician is? It's God. This world is his baby. And he can mend it. He's got mad skills at restoration. It's what he does. This is the mission. It's his mission. Is it yours? Secondly, so when does this restoration happen? What's the timetable? That's the template. What's the timetable? It's in the very first verse of Micah chapter 4. What does it say? In the latter days. So when are the latter days? Is that something to come? No, no, no. The Bible is very clear that the latter days are inaugurated with the first coming of Jesus. That's the biblical chronology. When Jesus walked into the world, darkness began to flee. When Jesus walked into the world, it was an assault on hell. Remember when Jesus said, he said, how do you know the kingdom of God has come? When you plunder the house of the strong man, you couldn't do that unless the strong man were tied up. The kingdom has come. You know what Jesus started his ministry? The Bible says in Matthew chapter 4, he went from village to village to village and he proclaimed the gospel of, anybody know? The kingdom. The king has come to bring restoration, to mend the world. And then what did Jesus do? He touched the sick, every kind of disease, every kind of illness, and he made them well. He said, basically, I'm not just telling you that the mending has happened. Jesus said, I'm mending. I am here. The mending has begun. But meanwhile, we live in this brokenness. Even John the Baptist, he's about to be executed. So he sends word to Jesus and says what? Are you the mender? Or is there another? So, you know, if you doubt, if I doubt, if we doubt, John the Baptist doubted. Jesus said he was the greatest man who ever lived. And what was Jesus' response? He sent messengers back that said, go tell John what? The blind see. 
The deaf hear, the lame walk, the lepers are healed, and the poor have the good news preached to them. The mender has come. Do you remember in the third segment of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Aragorn comes to Minas Tirith, but he's in disguise. He's the king, but he's still dangerous, so he can't be known yet. He goes to the houses of healing where his fallen warriors have died and are bleeding, and he lays his hands on them, and he makes them well. And there's an old sage, an old woman, an old wise woman who says in the midst of Aragorn's work these words, the hands of a king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. The king comes and with his hands he heals. Now people say, Pastor, this is all so well and good, but I'm not, I don't get it. I don't see it. I don't uh, see it. Why isn't everything mended? Well, everything isn't mended because the kingdom is now, but it's not yet. It's been entered into. It's been begun, but it's not consummated. It's like D-Day. Any historian of World War II says that once the Allied Expeditionary Force secured a beachhead in southern France, that the outcome was certain. But guess what? A lot of people died in the next year. There was a lot of death. There was a lot of battles. There was a lot of fighting on the way to the certain outcome. Uh, We live in the in-between. That's where we live. Now, a lot of people still say, I still don't see it. I don't see any mending at all happening in this world. But... Let me give you, there's probably about 20 reasons people wouldn't see it, and I will give you less than 20, which is part of the mending itself, give you hope. Here's a couple. Why don't we see the mending? Because we attribute human progress to human ingenuity and human effort, not to the grace of God, not to the common grace and goodness of God. If I had time, I could tell you all the studies that have shown wherever missionaries have gone in the world, wherever the gospel has gone in the world, it has radically changed that culture. It has changed the plight of women in that culture. It has changed the plight of children in that culture. It has changed the plight of the imprisoned and the poor in that culture, the marginalized, the handicapped, the elderly. We could talk about how it's changed the adequacy of uh, availability of clean drinking water, how it's changed the health standards, how it's provided a much broader-based education. Longevity of life has changed wherever the gospel has gone in this world over the last 2,000 years. It has made a radical difference in our world. I'll give you one little example. In our church, we have a man named Steve Saint, is a member of our church. Steve's father was named Nate Saint. Nate Saint was one of the five missionaries who were killed by the Wadani Indians in Ecuador in 1957. The Wadani Indians had a proclivity for killing outsiders, but they were far more proficient at killing each other, so that no Wadani lived really past their 20s. But uh, when they killed those five missionaries, following those missionaries came Jim Elliott's wife, Betty Elliott, and Nate Saint's sister, and they led many of the Wadani to faith in Christ. And Steve Saint was telling me that um, anthropologists have discovered that the Wadani lifespan is 50 years longer than it was then. There's never been anything like it in human history that in 50 years, they've added 50 years to the average life of someone who is a Wadani. There you have it. Got it? Second reason we don't see the mending is if the mending's not happening in you, then you don't see it. You have to experience the mending yourself. You know, if you're less burdened by fear, if you're less driven, if you're less self-absorbed, you know, if you have less of a critical spirit, 
if you're more relational, if you love better, if you listen better, if you're more generous, where do you think that came from? If you see a turtle on a fence post, what do you know? It didn't get there by itself. (laughs) You won't believe the mender is at work unless the mender is at work in you. And believe me, if you see love and graciousness and kindness coming out of Ray Cortez, it didn't happen because I took some self-improvement class. It happened because I met the mender. Got it? We don't see it because we haven't met the mender very often. We don't see it because we attribute progress to human ingenuity. And you know why else we don't see it? Because very often we have never experienced the church where hearts and lives were healed by the mender, where the mending happens. That's what a church is supposed to be, a place where skeptics and unbelievers can come and see people get mended. I read about a church recently that had a major split because they moved the coffee location. They were serving coffee in some sort of fellowship hall, but they'd put it over by the sanctuary. And this so offended the head usher that he led a revolt. And when he wasn't kowtowed to, all of the ushers um, quit the church because they'd committed the sacrilege of coffee moving. And so this is often the reputation of churches fighting over silly stuff. But we refuse to do it. And I'm sure this church refuses to do it. Why? There's too much mending to do. Going to church isn't about our personal peace and affluence. It's not about how comfortable we are. It's not about how much we like it. There's mending to be done, right? And so in our churches, we don't spend a lot of time differentiating ourselves from the, the Baptists and the Pentecostals and the, and the Anglicans and every other group, right? And trying to talk about how our doctrine is distinct and therefore that we're so much better than they are. We haven't got time for that. We need all hands on deck. The world's broken. We've got mending to do. I gave this message at a conference of college students recently, and right before I spoke, they were playing the song. I wasn't that familiar with it. Shut up and dance with me. You know that song? So just shut up and dance with me. And suddenly when I got to this point, I said, that's what the church needs to hear Jesus say. Just shut up and mend the world. They liked it, that line. (laughs) Listen. Our community has a very small African-American population, so they're very marginalized and sort of powerless and discouraged and have no economic or political power, really. And We had a young African-American woman started coming to our church, and her mama, who had been sort of a matriarch in the community, died. And unbeknownst to me, you know, she made it known that the great wish of her mother was to be buried in the black cemetery. I'd lived in the community over 20 years. I didn't know there was a black cemetery. It was from an earlier day. Uh, when blacks and whites had separate cemeteries. Well, apparently a lot of the black community didn't know either because it was totally overgrown. Gravestones couldn't even be seen. The grass had grown over, trees had fallen down in the midst. But this woman, her people, her kin were buried there. And again, utterly beknownst to the leadership of our church, people in our church organized and they went and they cut all the grass, cut up all the trees, removed all the debris, uh, set up the headstones again, fixed the whole thing up so her mama could be buried there with her people. I remember hearing that and thinking, I want to be in that church. I want to be in the church that does stuff like that. Got it? Third and finally then, who's the menders? Who's the team? Who's the mending team? The missional team? What does it say in the scriptures? It's fascinating. It says it's the lame 
And it's the broken that will be gathered. You see it right there in verse 7. It's the cast-offs. It's the nobodies. It's the humble that men the world. It's not the proud. It's not the arrogant. It's not the people haranguing against uh, all the sin out there in the world and all the wrong in our culture. It's not the people who are flooding um, Facebook with denunciations of presidential candidates. Because self-righteousness doesn't change anyone. Self-righteous, angry scolding hasn't mended anybody. It's the menders who mend. Listen, it's the church to be the menders. It's the central organizing purpose of our lives is to embrace this mission. We must be about the Father's business. It's the menders, those who have been mended who mend. We have a guy in our church came to join. He and his wife uh, sort of wandered in, and they fell in love with Jesus. And came to join the church, and I asked him, I said, tell me about your family. You know, we're just having a little interview, and, and he said, I don't have one. I said, well, who raised you? He said, well, I come from the state. I was like, what? Were you in an orphanage, or what does that mean? He said, well, I was taken away, and I was a foster child. I went from home to home, but he was so horribly abused in home after home that when he was about 11 or 12, he ran away, and he spent the rest of his childhood on his own, on sleeping in parks and benches and mass transit, and he changed his name so they wouldn't find him, and after a year, a friend of his said to him, you don't have to hide. Nobody's looking for you. Nobody cares. So the guy joined our church. He'd never had a birthday party. He never had a cake, never had a present, never had... Um, now I, took him to, I was at a football game with him last year. He had no idea what was going on. Never played sports as a kid, never. He and his wife, who also came from... A, his wife came from a childhood worse than his. They live in a trailer. He's a prison guard. They have three children of their own and seven foster children in their trailer. Why? Because no child is going to go to bed without a safe place to sleep in our community on his watch. You see, it's the menders. It's the lame and the broken who have been kissed by the grace of God who mend. We do it with our vocations, right? We do it by being attorneys and nurses and researchers and educators. We use the gifts that God has ended to create an army of menders, to be menders wherever we go. We do it by being moms and dads. This is our calling. It became very personal to me when my daughter was dating this guy, and then he called one night. Well, I knew what was up with this. It was the call. So, you know, he starts off with, well, you know, Kristen and I are really fond with each other. Just cut to the chase, you know. As if I'm going to be buttered up. Actually, we love this guy. We're fond of this guy. But, you know, you've been waiting all your life to be able to torment some guy like this. So, you know, he asked me for my daughter's hand in marriage. We want your blessing. We would like you to approve and all of this. And uh, I decided it's time to take a stand, you know. So I said to him, here's the deal. You're good to my girl. You take care of my girl. You won't have a better friend in this world than me. But you fail to do that. And I'll be on your butt, you know. Uh, <laughs> and it felt so good. And, um, and at that point, what is the response that he is supposed to make? Yes, sir. He said, well, I have a question. What do you mean you have a question? 
this isn't a negotiation. He says, you know, Chris and I are planning when we get married to move into the worst neighborhood, into the most blighted neighborhood, into the crime-infested neighborhood, the place where there's gangs and there's drugs and there's crime. And we're going to live for Jesus there. So if we do that, will that constitute taking care of your daughter? God gave me words to say that were way ahead of my heart. And the words were, Eric, if you don't take my daughter to that neighborhood, you will not be taking care of my daughter. Because the greatest danger to the soul of my daughter and grandchildren to come is the prosperity and missionless nature of our culture. I would rather you guys live a short life than to live a meaningless life. And that's where they live. They live about a mile and a half from the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. But the Pulse nightclub wasn't a big story in their neighborhood because there's three or four people shot every week in their neighborhood. Now what could compel anyone to be a mender of the world? Do you know what compels us to? We don't have to be obsessed with ourselves because somebody else was obsessed with our well-being. Jesus, the love of Jesus. We have a father. He's good, 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 good. And we are his beloved, so we don't have to make life about ourselves. He made his life about us. So if you've met the mender, I have an invitation. Join the mission. Jesus said, even as the Father has sent me, so send I you. Let's go mend the world. Amen. Let me pray. Father, would you enable us to experience the sweetness of your love and your mending of our stone-cold, self-absorbed hearts so that we long for our neighbors and our friends and our families to know the beauty of your love, to be reconciled to you. So Lord, mend us yet that we might be your menders. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.